You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with John Irving. This program originally aired in 2013. The wrestler with the most beautiful body was named Kittredge. He had a hairless chest with absurdly well-defined pectoral muscles. Those muscles were of an exaggerated comic book clarity. In the showers at the gym, I lowered my eyes. For the most part, I wouldn't look at him above his strong, hairy legs. Kittredge had a heavy beard, but he had perfect skin and was generally clean-shaven. I found him at his most devastatingly handsome, with two or three days stubble, when he looked older than the other students, and even some of the favorite river faculty. Kittredge played soccer in the fall and lacrosse in the spring, but wrestling was the foremost showcase for his beautiful body, and the wrestling seemed well-suited to his innate cruelty. While I rarely saw him bully anyone, that is, physically, he was aggressive and intimidating, and his sarcasm was of a cutting-edge kind. In that all-boys boarding school world, Kittredge was honored as an athlete, but I remember him best for how effectively abusive he was. Kittredge was brilliant at inflicting verbal pain, and he had the body to back up what he said. No one stood up to him. If you despised him, you kept quiet about it. I both despised and adored him. Alas, the despising him part did little to lessen my crush on him. He was born and grew up in New York City, where his father had something to do with international banking, or maybe it was international law. Kittredge's mother was French. My mom, who I don't believe really is my mom, is very vain, Kittredge said, as if he weren't vain. I saw her only once at a wrestling match. I admired her clothes. She certainly was beautiful, though I thought her boy was better looking. Mrs. Kittredge had a masculine kind of attractiveness. She looked chiseled. She even had her son's prominent jaw. How could Kittredge have believed she wasn't his mom? They looked so much alike. She looks like Kittredge with breasts, Elaine Hadley said to me. How could she not be his mother, Elaine asked me unless she's his much older sister. Come on, Billy. If they were the same age, she could be his twin. After the wrestling match, Elaine and I had stared at Kittredge's mother. She seemed unfazed by it, with her striking bones, her jutting breasts, her perfectly fitted and most flattering clothes. Mrs. Kittredge was certainly used to being stared at, I wonder if she waxes her face, I said to Elaine. Why would she have to, Elaine asked me. I can imagine her with a mustache, I said. Yeah, but with no hair on her chest like him, Elaine replied. I suppose that Kittredge's mum was riveting to us because we could see Kittredge in her. But Mrs. Kittredge was also riveting in her own disturbing way. 
She was the first older woman who made me feel I was too young and inexperienced to understand her. I remember thinking that it must have been intimidating to have her as a mother, even for Kittredge. I knew that Elaine had a crush on Kittredge because she'd told me. Embarrassingly, we'd both memorized Kittredge's chest. That fall of 59, when I was 17, I hadn't been honest with Elaine about my crushes. I'd not yet been brave enough to tell her that both Miss Frost and Kittredge turned me on. And how could I have told Elaine about my confounding lust for her mom? When Kittredge spoke of his own mother, he usually raised the issue of there being a possible mix-up. Maybe my real mom died in childbirth, Kittredge said. My father found some unwed mother in the same hospital, an unfortunate woman. Her child was stillborn, but the woman never knew. A woman who looked like my mother, maybe. There was a switch. My dad would be capable of such a deception. I'm not saying the woman knows she's my stepmother. She may even believe my dad is my stepfather. At the time, she might have been taking a lot of drugs. She must have been depressed, maybe suicidal. I have no doubt that she believes she's my mom. She just doesn't always act like a mother. She's done some contradictory things, contradictory to motherhood, I mean. All I'm saying is that my dad has never been answerable for his behavior with women, with any woman. My dad just makes deals. This woman may look like me, but she's not my mom. She's not anyone's mother. Kittredge is in denial, Elaine had told me. That woman looks like his mother and his father. <laughs> Elaine suggested that I tell Kittredge our opinion of his mother based on our shameless staring at her at one of his wrestling matches. Elaine said, tell him, his mom looks like him, with You tell him, I told her. You tell him. John Irving, reading from his novel In One Person for writers on a New England stage, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. The book features elements familiar to Irving readers, a New England prep school setting, stepfather as savior, sexual outsiders, wrestling. Irving often dismisses the idea that his novels are autobiographical. On stage at the Music Hall, however, he gave us some rare insight into his process and talked about common interpretations of his novels. Probably questions of fiction and autobiography, meaning mine, will emerge in some of the questions you've written, and maybe sooner. But let me say something about what is autobiographical. I've never written about myself. The people in my novels have had much more interesting and horrible things happen to them than have ever happened to me, both interesting or horrible. 
I feel fortunate as a fiction writer that nothing that's happened to me seems very important or very sacred. I've used certain details in my life repeatedly, and every time I've used them, I've changed them from novel to novel, and certainly from what they were, that is, in real life. Simply, I've discarded the real life part, not interesting enough. What I usually mean by that is not bad enough. Not bad enough for me. One of my heroes as a writer had this to say to younger writers. This is Melville. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than appall. <laughs> well, that goes back to where I began. You can choose to make some things appalling. But the things that really are appalling are the things that frighten you. The things you're repeatedly afraid of that you hope never happen to you or to anyone you love. And I am drawn always to write about those things, not about what has happened to me, but about what in my character's situation I would most fear. I'm not telling any of you who've read more than one of my novel anything you don't already know, but the formula for what I do is very simple and it is willfully perverse. I try to think of people I love and create them so that you will love or at least be interested in them too. And then, as most of you know, I decide which of these people I love is going to suffer. Because they are. That's what always happens. That's what happens. There is something you see coming. You, the reader, see it coming. I always see it coming, because I begin there. I begin with what has happened, remember? Well, you always know what that thing is. You know Owen Meany is dead when you read the first sentence. I am doomed to remember. Ah, that means he's gone. He's done. He's gone. Right? You just don't know yet how or why, right? But that's what you're waiting for, right? Homer Wells has every reason in the world not to want anything to do with abortion. He's an orphan. The only thing his mother gave him was she let him live. Why would he be interested in abortion? He's not. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He's got a good reason. But somebody taught him how to do it. And as the old genius who taught him how to do it says, if the women don't have any choice, why should you? And that will trap him. No one reading the Cider House Rules, I think, could imagine for a minute that when Homer Wells trained with perfect, as Dr. Larch says, obstetrical and gynecological procedure, no one could believe that that guy isn't one day going to have to pick up the curette and do it. Of course he is. You know that as well as I do, right? In In One Person, it's the 1950s and the 1960s, and you know almost from the beginning that you are listening to the sexual confessions of a boy who's coming of age sexually at that period of time, and he already told you on the third page that he's in his late 60s, almost 70. Uh-oh. What happens in 1981? What's going to happen to many of these characters you are meeting as you go? 
right? You know the AIDS crisis is coming. Billy doesn't know it, but you know it, right? I didn't make this up. I learned this from those plotted novels of the 19th century. It's not an accident that Queequeg asks to have a coffin built and that the coffin is converted to a life buoy. It's not an accident. That's the means by which Ishmael lives and survives the loss of the Pequod to tell you the story. Right? That's why that happens. That's why it happens. The sense that these characters are fated and that what is going to happen to them was always going to happen to them is something that, you know, I, I learned from what I read. I learned that from the 19th century novel, from Shakespeare, from Sophocles, right? Does anyone imagine when you're reading the Oedipus cycle of plays that the guy who kills his father and has children with his mother is going to have a happy life? Do you think when Hamlet goes home because his dad is dead and his dad is worse than dead, a ghost, and his mother has been misbehaving, do we think Hamlet's going to have a good time and run off with Ophelia at the end of it? I don't think so. When King Lear is such a fool that everyone in the audience knows which daughter loves him, act one, scene one, it's Cordelia, you stooge. But Lear doesn't know it. He thinks the two bitches who are his daughters love him. Everyone in the audience knows he's wrong, right? Well, that's where it comes from. You know, it comes from that old engine, which was plot. Plot existed for centuries before there were novels. Shakespeare has a plot. Greek classical drama has a plot. And the 19th century novel has a plot, too. So it was kind of a convenience to me when I wanted to be a writer at age 14 that the thing that made me most want to be a writer was already passé, was already old-fashioned, was already long out of style, right? Before I wrote my first book, plot was considered dead, which was okay with me, right? It was okay with me. That meant that very few other people were doing it. Right? This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with John Irving. Before the break, we heard him read from his novel, In One Person. The narrator of In One Person is a bisexual named William, or Billy, Abbott. He, like John Irving, was inspired to become a novelist after reading the works of Charles Dickens. Billy is also powerfully attracted to the transgendered librarian who first introduces him to fiction and its endless possibilities. After his first book is published, Billy's mother sniffs that novels are just another kind of cross-dressing, aren't they? I sat down with John Irving on stage at the Music Hall and asked him, what does he get to try on when writing a novel? 
Well, I, I think that we live increasingly in, in a world where so-called real life has um, compromised our imaginations. We see so much of it, and so much of it is, is grave or full of um, alarming portents that uh, we, we, we don't maybe have the capacity to believe in the make-believe that we once had, or certainly not the capacity that we all had as children. I feel about the novel that I can create a whole life, a trajectory for a whole life. The passage of time is almost as important as a major minor character in almost all of my novels, which is one reason most of them are of a certain length. Mm. You can't write a short novel about 50 years. But a novel can show you how what happens in one's formative years can make you the adult you become, or in some cases make you incapable of becoming an adult. It's no accident that I am drawn to, at least in the beginnings of almost all of my novels, I'm drawn to the point of view of a child or an adolescent, or someone on the cusp of leaving childhood for adolescence, or someone leaving adolescence for adulthood. There's an age that especially interests me, and not me alone. Think of how many novelists have been interested in those years. I'm also thinking that along with that reckoning that any person goes through or a character goes through, there are also moments in so many of your novels that are, I find myself laughing out loud while reading. And I think that happens to few people while reading novels. I think it happens a lot when you're in, watching a film. So while it, they're extremely funny in some ways, you wouldn't describe them as, what a funny book about that person growing up bisexual and struggling with his sexuality. But there are moments of just complete lunacy in them. And I wonder if you think, you know, do, would you like to be known as a, as a man who writes funny novels? You know, there, there are a lot of things you can choose about yourself as, as a writer, about your subject and your language. But along with the obsessions, along with what frightens you, which you have no choice about, which you can't choose, you can't choose to be funny. We all have friends who aren't funny, but who try. <laughs> uh, it's painful. Um, it's, it's, it's really painful. Um, on the other hand, we have friends who are funny, and they can't help being funny at the most inappropriate times. <laughs> Be because that's who they are. That's, that, that's what happens. Uh, terrible things happen in my novels, yes. But I would say that I am a comic novelist because I'm in that category of, of person who, I, I, I don't have any control over that. Um, uh, the, uh, namely, the inappropriateness. Um, the part that's conscious is this, though. I strongly believe that narrative must have momentum in other words, if you aren't more emotionally and psychologically invested in a novel on page 400 
than you were on page 40, you won't keep reading. It's not going to bother me if someone thinks, oh, this is fun, this is funny, I'm enjoying this, because I know there are things coming that no one's going to, that no one's going to enjoy. And I, and I don't believe that I can expect you to read those things if you don't have some stake in these characters' lives. I have to get you there. I have to get you to that. I don't know that you can do that as effectively in another kind of storytelling as you can in a novel. One of the discomforts I always feel when I consider an adaptation of a novel to a film is how much less of an emotional impact is what happens to this character going to have in two hours and five minutes of a movie than I was able to build in three or four or 500 pages of a novel. It's not the same. Well, how did you do that for the Cider House Rules? You won an Oscar for the adapted screenplay for that film, and there were characters that were cut out wholesale and elements of uh, the plot that were changed. And I wonder, I mean, after spending so much time getting to know these characters, shaping them, forming them, how do you, as they say in the editorial language, slay your puppies? Maybe the best way to look at that is, is to realize how little interested I usually am in the process of adaptation. How, uh, uh, maybe the best way to look at that is, is to look at how infrequently I'm interested in being a part of that process of adapting my novels to films at all. I did not want to write the screenplay for The World According to Garp. George Roy Hill, who directed that film, was a good friend of mine. I loved George. Um, I, I loved his films. Not that one so much. Um, but I loved him and I loved his movies. And uh, I said, no, I don't want to do it. I don't see it as a movie. Um, that's usually the way I feel. The difference in the case of Cider House, it was one of the few novels I've written where I could see how to tell the story without compromising the central point and lose the passage of time. When I look at most of my novels, including this one, In One Person, I don't see how you can throw out the passage of time. And if you keep the passage of time in, you have one of those movies where you have three actors playing the same character. And frankly, I hate those movies. And I never believe them, including, this would include many adaptations of my beloved Charles Dickens, many. The movie of the Cider House Rules is pretty good, but it's not nearly as good as the novel. Um, <laughs> you know, it, I, I had to lose a lot. It's not a process that I, I want to undertake uh, lightly. Would you like to look at some of these questions here? Do you think that's better, or do you think it's more fun if you read I, them? I, I, I like choosing them, actually, especially the kind of zany ones like this one. Why don't you read them, and I'll and then you and tell me I'll if you want to answer sort them. Of rude responses, <laughs> or not? You can, you know, one grunt yes, two grunts no. Who would win in a wrestling match, Owen Meany or Simon Birch? I don't okay, know. let's move on. I don't remember. I don't remember Simon Birch. How do you How do you know so much about good sex?
Okay. Well, there's a difference. <laughs> uh, surely we all know that there's a difference between knowing something about sex and thinking about sex all the time. Uh, and I don't think it's... I'm very different from a person of my generation who grew up in a small town and thought about uh, sex all the time. The difference is that... The, the, the difference is that most people's sexual activity begins in their imagination and doesn't progress past it. <laughs> Thankfully, in most cases. But, but in my case, you see, I, my whole life is imagining things. So, in a sense, I have simply perpetuated my adolescence by continuing to think about sex that I don't actually have. <laughs> um, uh, by, so, you know, that's just a form of never growing up. Um, but the serious part about sex in my novels is, is, is um, how many disproportionate penalties there seem to be for having it, some of which are comic, some of which are grotesque, some of which are admittedly satiric and exaggerated, but many of which are real. I, I think one reason, this is different from what one knows about sex, one reason I am drawn to write so much about sex has everything to do with what an uptight, punitive society, American society, continues to be on the subject of sex. Uh, so that I am very much motivated to stick it in the face. And, 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 and to, I, I am appalled at what a juvenile society, sexually, I continue to live in. This country's acceptance of sexual differences or sexual variety or sexual minorities, it's, it's so backward. It's so enough already to, to keep pointing back to our Puritan roots. Dear God, so what? Get over it. I mean, I, I, I think the, the honest answer to how much sex there is or how much about sex there is in my novel says everything to do with the fact that I am an American writer. And if I were a German writer or a French writer, I, maybe I would have stopped thinking about it when I was a teenager. I, I'm, well, I guess that's an advantage of I'm writing about a, a 13 to 17-year-old boy. I mean, he's going to think about sex a lot. And in the case of this character, of Billy Abbott, he's bisexual. Well, here's the thing. You know, let's just think of that. A lot has been written about Billy Abbott as, as being an extreme character because of his bisexuality, because of another example of my fondness for interest in sexual minorities, sexual outsiders like Garp's mother, Dr. Larch in The Cider House Rules, and Johnny Wheelwright, the narrator of A Prayer for Owen Meany. These three characters who didn't have sex, they're much harder for me to imagine than a guy who wants to have sex with men and women. Well, it's far easier for me to imagine wanting to have sex with men and women than it is for me to imagine never wanting to have sex at all. But nobody questioned those other characters, right? Not in this country, you know. 
When I went to Europe, the first thing that people asked me for those translations was, what, what the hell's the matter with this guy? <laughs> right? It, it isn't, another, what I'm saying is, it, it isn't Billy Abbott who's weird, but Dr. Larch is very strange. Right? You see what I mean? I do, I do. But you know, Larry, uh, one of Billy's former lovers, accuses him of being by everything. You know, he's not committed or attached enough to any cause or any person. You know, it's not just that he's bisexual. I mean, is that, is that a judgment or is that as a narrative possibility opens up everything? Both Larry and Richard in this novel are my mouthpieces for criticizing Billy. For... Richard is his stepfather. Yes, it's Richard who says to Billy, everyone's intolerant of something, Billy. What are you intolerant of? And Richard knows that uh, Billy is intolerant of intolerance. And he's very intolerant of intolerance. Uh, Richard gets, gets that right. Well, Larry gets some things right about Billy, too. Billy's solitariness uh, is, in part, a choice. Many people who didn't get sick during the AIDS epidemic, but who lived sexual lives that got other people sick, had that survival guilt, which Billy feels. But Billy also feels incapable of holding the hand. There is a remoteness to him mm -hmm. that, that comes with his anger. And I, I, I remember a lot of that too. I remember feeling, you know, I've, I've probably not gotten over it a couple of times when a friend who had AIDS would say to me, don't, please don't come see me. I don't want you to see me. I, a couple of times, was all too willing to do what he asked. And I shouldn't have. I should have gone anyway. Your looks are laughable Unphotographable Yet you're my favorite work of art You're listening to my conversation with the author John Irving, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers Is on a New England Stage. We're talking about his latest novel, In One Person. Is your mouth a little weak When you open it to speak Are you smart But don't Change your hair for me Not if you care for me Stay, little Valentine Stay Each day
I'm sorry to change the subject from that, but we do have a lot of questions about your process of writing. Do you ever regret or wince at words or ideas that you wrote that can't now be changed? No. No. Well, I guess no. that's an idea of things coming out fully formed. Well, I, I, I've talked about that process. I mean, I, I live with the novel for so long before I begin writing it that I can't say this often enough. It is as if the story has already happened. And, and when I begin writing it, I'm really choosing the order in which to tell you this story. I already know the story. And most particularly, I know what's waiting for me. Not just what happens, but how it sounds, what the tone of voice is. You know, it's, it, it's like a piece of music that it's not a refrain to the reader because the reader hasn't heard it, but it is a refrain to you. I, I recognize how odd this is. It, it's odd. Many of my writer friends don't work this way at all, and I know what I expect them to. They don't also like to read the same stuff I like to read. So many of us didn't become writers for the same reasons. Yes, I, 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 I certainly know the end of, of the novel I'm writing now, which is a, between a half and two-thirds along. Um, it's a third-person novel. It's about a Mexican-American who's an older man, semi-retired, who takes a trip to the Philippines. He's remembering a young man, an American draft dodger, that he met when he was a kid in Mexico. He's remembering this young man in his 20s who was running away from the draft, who tells him this story. He says, I don't want to go to Vietnam and die until I can go see the place where my father died in World War II. His father was one of many Americans who died in the, in the Philippines and whose remains this young man knows are in the vast American military cemetery in Manila. And so this older man, this Mexican-American, thinks he's going to the Philippines to pay homage to this dead U.S. soldier who that soldier's son never got to meet. But of course, that's not why he's going to the Philippines. Uh, there's another reason he's going to the Philippines. And there's something else that's waiting for him in the Philippines, which is his story. And the last line, you know, it's funny, you could do this with any one of my last lines, probably. Uh, the funny thing about this last sentence to this novel, which is called Avenue of Mysteries, there's a street of that name in Mexico City. This sentence would have worked pretty well for some other novels as well. It's very simple. Not every collision course comes as a surprise. <laughs> that even sounded like the voice of a trailer. <laughs> You know, John Irving, I'm listening to you and thinking about, you know, your wild imagination and how you can have novels swirling around in your head for years. And especially now that we're living in this age where, you know, uh, reality television and people's posts and updates on Twitter and Facebook are supposed to be giving us windows into the lives of others. Where, where is fiction? You know, is fiction getting squeezed out by that? And, and what happens if fiction is lost? I'm not sure. I have this conversation with my children sometimes. I, I'm not sure that I would uh, be a novelist or, or want to become a novelist if I were 14 years old uh, today. I'm not sure. 
Can I tell you that's heartbreaking to hear? Uh, because I, I think it's a very hard time to be a first novelist today. I think I might be tempted today to go back to what my first love was, which was the theater. Mm. Not, never movies, not movies, the theater. The title of your new book is from a play, from Richard II. Do you want to say the line? Thus play I in one person many people and none contented. Act 5, scene 5. Is Richard contented, this 60-plus-year-old man looking back at his life? Is he contented to have lived it as he did? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't have chosen to do anything differently. I mean, I, um, I'm very lucky as a writer in, in that I met some wonderful older mentors when I was a young writer, some people who helped me and gave me confidence. And I also had editors in publishing of a kind who are increasingly, sadly, rare today. I, I had people who really challenged me, who marked up every page. I kind of had to um, fight for every sentence I kept, and I, um, I didn't change much of what I wrote as a result of those scrupulous and combative editors, but I, I learned a great deal from them. I, I was very much aware of their presence, even, you know, even after they died. Maybe we should end with, with, with what is, a, especially for the young writers who may be around. I know a good story about publishing today because um, I have a new young editor, an editor now. Well, he's young to me. He's 47, 48. This is interesting. The editor who meant a great deal to me in my life was a man named Joe Fox. He was Truman Capote's editor. He was Philip Roth's first editor. He was really instrumental in, in my life. And near the end of his life, although neither of us knew it, he had a young intern working for him. And the intern was 27 years old. The manuscript of A Son of the Circus, one of my most difficult novels, came into this editor's desk. And Joe said, kid, read this and write me a report. And I'll read it after you do, but write me a report. And the 27-year-old wrote a report. It was never meant for me to see. He wrote a piece about A Son of the Circus that was so good, and it was about all the books before it as well, that Joe sent it to me and said, you see this? Well, if something happens to me, this kid should be your publisher. Well, I'd never heard of this kid, right? And I didn't think anything was going to happen to Joe. And not long after that, he died. And um, I spoke at his uh, memorial service. And there were a lot of writers who spoke at that service. And I asked someone else at Random House where the intern was. And when I saw this guy, I mean, he was one of those 27-year-olds who looked 17. <laughs> to me, anyway, he looked like a baby. You know, he looked like he shaved once a week or something. And I thought, oh my God. And uh, I, I told him what Joe said, and I said, you know, the truth is, I can't work with you because if I chose to work with you, every older editor at this house would kill you. <laughs> they would make you miserable because I chose you, and you're not, you wouldn't have any authority, and, and you would be so unhappy. I believe I was right. But he, of course, was crushed. He was crushed, and he'd never know that, that Joe had told me this. So I thought, oh, God, I shouldn't have told him. I should have just left it alone. 
And I went away with this image of this young boy's face, in my opinion, thinking, oh my God, I've ruined his life and, and I'll never see him again, etc. Well, years went by and I, 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 I never did have quite the relationship with anyone again that I had with, with, with Joe Fox. And it's not the thing you want to do late in your life. You don't want to change publishers when you're as old as I am, especially in your own language and in your own country. But I felt, in the case of this book, this time, in one person, that I really had to make a move. I had to find somebody. I said to my wife, who's also my agent, you know, we have to find that kid. It was 20 years ago, right? I said, we have to find that kid. If that kid is still reading, if that kid is doing anything, we have to find that kid. I want to meet that kid. And my wife is, is, is very patient with me usually, but, but she said, he's not a kid. Uh, and he wasn't really a kid 20 years ago. And he is now the editor-in-chief at Simon & Schuster. Well, I was floored, and I said, he is? Um, and she said, yes, he has had a life after you. <laughs> well, knock me down, you know, I, I had no idea, you know. So I said, well, we were on our way to France for a translation and a, a number of angry dinners and things. And, um, I don't know. And I said, well, get a hold of him. I want to see him when I get back to New York, and um, I want to meet him. And so I did meet him. And, of course, he still looked like a kid. You know, he's now he's a 47, 48-year-old who looks like he's 27 or 28 or something. He's just one of those guys who always looked younger than he is. And I loved him. I loved everything he'd read and what he said about things. And, you know, I thought, well, this is all pretty good, you know. But um, my wife was coming back from Paris on another plane, and her plane was late, and I kept thinking, oh, for God's sake, I just want to say, I want to get to the heart of the conversation, but, you know, she didn't show up, she didn't show up, she didn't show up. Finally, she got to the dinner, and I tried to indicate that, oh, this guy is great, he's wonderful, and everything's going very well, but there is this important thing that I have to ask him. And I hesitated because of what in one person was about. And I thought, oh boy, what if he's homophobic? What if he is? I said, impossible, inconceivable. And I said, well, you know, I said, there's something I should say to you because before we go any farther, uh, you know, I know you've read everything of mine and there's a lot of issues of sexual tolerance and sexual differences in my book. Yes, 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 he said. And I said, well, yeah, but... I said, this one, this book may push the envelope a little hard for you, and, you know, you just got to tell me if, if it is. I said, this novel is in the point of view and in the voice of a bisexual man, and if you have a problem with that, you better tell me now, and we'll just say it's nice seeing you again. Well, you know, he, he turned this color, you know. He looked awful, and I thought, oh, no. It's all gone, you know. It's, it's, you shouldn't want anything as much as this. And the poor guy looked at me and said, but I am a bisexual man. <laughs> and I looked at my wife and she said, don't say anything. 
Bye. <laughs> so, isn't that good? <laughs> See? I mean, I, I, I told you I was lucky. <laughs> I met her in a club down in Old Soho Where you drink champagne and it tastes just like cherry cola C-O-L-A cola Please join me in thanking Mr. John Irving. Thank you.